I remember when I was pastoring in a, in a rural community and I had opportunity to um, be involved in a senior's home, different kinds of senior's homes. And one of the ones I was a part of, it, it, was, it was kind of a mixed blessing in some ways because you saw these people and you had opportunity to minister to them, but as they got older, some of these residents began forgetting things and forgetting who you were and, of course, they would, um, you know, start forgetting all kinds of things. And uh, not that it was important for them to remember me, but, but just their engagement in, in relationship with God was always tough. However, one of the things that the last things that always would often go with people in the seniors' home is you start playing music and they just, they just come alive. And so we never had long messages in the seniors' home. We never, you know, we cut them down short. Bible studies were always short. And uh, because they, they loved the music part, but sometimes the messages, they would kind of drift off and go into Never Never Land. And, or they would get fidgety or they would disengage in all kinds of different ways. I, I, and as you could see them progress. And sometimes it was exciting to see the, the way that the light would kick on. And other times my heart would break for them as they began to slip into uh, different spaces and things would get lodged in their brain. I remember one old gentleman, he was a Swede, and he had a very thick Swedish accent, and for the sake of the story, I've, I've changed his name. I mean, he's long gone by now. This was 30-some years ago. Um, but let's just call him Mr. Nilsson. And uh, he was an awesome, he was a great guy. And uh, I, I had taken him, you know, had done a few things and helped him out in different ways and taken him up to the bank one time and different things like that. But as he began to deteriorate, he, he, he became a little bit interruptive at times. And I don't know how many times it happened, but as I started was doing the, the services or doing teaching and Bible study there, he would, he would kind of stop me and said, um, he asked the one question. And the question was, it was more, almost more like a statement, I guess. But he said, Moses was a Jew, wasn't he? And so I'd be talking about, not about Moses, I'd be talking about Jesus or whatever, and he'd stop me right then and just go, Moses was a Jew, wasn't he? And so the first time he said it, I kind of said, well, Moses really wasn't a Jew because he was part of the tribe of Israel, and, you know, the theological answer, young, young pastor, right? So got to prove him wrong, you know, set him straight, right? Didn't matter. Ten minutes later, he'd go, Moses was a Jew, wasn't he? And so I, I kind of kind of shortened down the answer, and then the next week when I came in, or the next time I was there, again, he interrupted and said the same statement, and so I said, yes, Mr. Nilsson, Moses was a Jew, and, that, and then he was happy, and on we went, and I didn't have to try and explain it. I'm not sure the rest of the, the people that were there really caught it, but, you know, it was just, it was a way of, of, of ministering to him and, and realizing that that really, for whatever reason, that was important for him, to understand that have his answer, his question answered. Um, I remember uh, another conversation um, I had with uh, with a woman, and uh, her marriage was not good. Uh, they were probably in their late fifties, at sixties at the time, and uh, she had been to a, a Christian counselor regarding her marriage, and um, the counselor had come back to her and said, one hundred percent of your marriage problems are your husband's fault. Like, she told me that. And I'm going, that's interesting. I, I've not known too many counselors that have put all the blame on one spouse. But I'm going, okay. So she, then she went on for about 45 minutes rambling and 
began to unload on all the things that he had done and all the reasons why he had made mistakes and the things that he had done wrong. And, I'm, and, and I'd, I'd known this, this couple. They, they were part of our church. And I'd known them for several years and had visited with them on a number of occasions, probably even had them in our home. And, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, she kept saying, well, you know, he does this and he doesn't treat me nice and he doesn't say this to me and he doesn't do this for me and da-da-da-da. And I'm thinking, hmm, interesting, because I can think of at least three or four occasions in which you did think, I didn't say this to her, but I, I, I was thinking in my mind, I think this is a, this is not all 100% his fault. I mean, it might be 80% his fault, but it, it, there's some parts of it that, that are your fault because I remember some things that she said about him in public, in front of others, and I'm going, it was very demeaning and, and very, you know, she said some not very nice things about him. And so, so she went on this, she was going on for 40 minutes about all the things her husband had done wrong. And so she finally got to, she kind of took a breath at one point, and so I stepped into the conversation, and I was on the phone with her, and I said, um, you know, and I kind of hinted very, very gently, I thought it was very gently and very casually, I thought, is, do you really think it's all his fault? Do you think there's a, is, is there, do you think some of it could be owned by you? Oh, man, you'd think I had, I had said the, a cuss word or something. She just got so angry with me, and just... She, I wasn't listening to her, and she went on, and, and I tried to push it a little farther, which is probably the wrong thing to do. Again, young pastor, right? So you push it a little bit farther, just trying to get her to open up to the idea, and, and no, that was wrong. And then finally she just hung up on me. So I thought, okay, I, I pushed way too hard. So I drove out to their farm and uh, apologized to her in person, and she still never spoke to me for like two or two, three years after that. And, um, but she did eventually come around, but I don't, I don't know what caused the change, but one, anyways, God, it was something God did in her heart. But, but I, what I apologized for, not is what I said, but was how I said it. I wasn't as caring and as sensitive and probably should have stopped after the first time when she reacted to my statement saying, there's a possibility this might be more than just your husband's fault. Another time, one of our, our kids, when they were about maybe three or four years old, had, uh, had dragged, we were in a, in a uh, fourplex, I think, at the time, and they had dragged a bunch of the toys from the front door out to the street, out to the sidewalk. And, and it was, I don't know, it was lunchtime or supper time or something, and so I was looking after the kids that day. I think, I think Vance was working at the bank. And so I said, you know, I, I kind of said to them, I said, hey, can you go get the toys, please, and bring them up to the house? Because they had dragged them all the way up there, right? So I'm going, can you, can you go? And I asked real nicely, and, and they went, no. And I went, oh, okay. So I, so I asked again. I said, no, look, we really need the toys here. Can you please go up to the sidewalk and bring the toys back to the house? No. And I went, oh, okay. So then I, I, I thought, okay, this is, I thought, I, I got to be a little more forceful here, because obviously the child's not, this one's not understanding properly. So I said, you know, the toys are up there. You took them up there, you know, trying to be an adult in conversation with a three-year-old. Go up there and bring, can you please just, you took them up there, please bring them back. And they said, no. And then I said, okay, I'm going to ask you one more time. Can you go up there? No. So I, this time I swatted them on the, on the little, little light tap on the behind just to kind of catch their attention. And I said, go get the toys. No. So I thought, well, let's try it once more. A little harder this time. No. And I thought, this is not going the way I had imagined it to be. 
So I stopped and I thought, hmm, what can I do? So I thought, okay, um, how about you and I go get the toys together? Okay. <laughs> and away we went and got the toys hand in hand. Working with people creates different kinds of scenarios. We need, we, we have to engage people in different ways. Sometimes certain things work and other times they don't work. And we have to change the way in which we do things. And the, the interesting thing is, all of us lead somebody. All of us serve people or shepherd somebody. We come alongside people and encourage them. We may shepherd our kids. We may shepherd our friends. We may encourage our friends. We may, we, there may be other people around us like employees or even our bosses that we may come alongside and kind of shepherd and help and encourage along the way because they don't have everything they need. Or there may be, we might be leaders of organizations or leaders in a ministry opportunity where God calls us to shepherd. And God calls us to find all kinds of ways, creative ways, to shepherd and lead people. The interesting thing is, Paul or Peter, as we look at 1 Peter, understood that. And so he gave us some key characteristics as he finishes out the book of 1 Peter about this whole aspect of how to serve and how to lead people well. He starts off in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, he starts off by talking to the elders, but we're going to see that actually he's talking, that, that the instructions he gives there is more than just to the elders. In, in the beginning he says, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering who also will share in the glory to be revealed. In other words, he says, okay, you know, he says, let's start with the, those that should know better. And then he quickly changes tune as he gets into it. And, and he says, he ends up by saying in verse 5, which is kind of the summary of what he's, the first five verses there, is kind of the summary of what he's pointing at. And he says this in verse 5. He says, in the same way you who are younger... Submit yourselves to your elders. And then he makes this statement. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility. Excuse me, with humility towards one another. In other words, he says, all of you need to be humble. Whether you're an elder and, and leading, whether you're somebody ahead of an organization, or whether you're a parent, or whether you're a young person in university, in school, or whatever, he says, humility is key. Humility is key. Is, 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 is a, a very important factor. I mean, elsewhere in scriptures we see that God says, and he repeats this dozens of times throughout the scriptures, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, but shows favor to the humble. As I said, verse 5 kind of summarized, that's the key point there in the first part of this passage. Is, but he actually, in verses 2 to 4, he kind of gives an expanded version of it and says, well, really the way this works out is to be humble. So let's look at verses 2 to 4 because this is really the practical outworkings of humility. In verse 2, Peter says, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. In other words, whoever you are working alongside, whether it's as a, as in a church or whether it's your children or whether it's your boss or those that are employees underneath you, whoever is underneath your care, he says, watch over them, not because you must, but because you are willing. In other words, watch your, your motivation. Humility, the, one of the key factors on, humi on, on uh, humility is our motivation, is why do we do what we do? Not because we have to, oh, I got these kids, I just gotta, 
I got to raise these kids. No, no, because we want to. Or, oh, these employees, or my boss, or whatever. We, you know, we, our attitude is critical when it comes to humility. And he goes on to explain it. Um, because we need to be willing. And then he says, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. In other words, don't, it's not about you. Humility is never about us. And then he goes on to verse 3. He says, not lording it, or, or, but eager to serve. The end of verse 2, sorry. I missed that part. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording over it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, that is Jesus, appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So, in other words, he says there, humility is, is like serving. It's not lording, it's not demanding, it's not uh, all this kind of stuff. It's, it's serving people, whether they're those that are above you or those alongside you or those that are around you. Um, the last little while I've been, I've been doing is I've been reading through the book of Acts. Um, one of the things I've, I've noticed is that the, the name Silas was one of Paul's guys. Um, he helped out Paul. His name appears in all kinds of places throughout the New Testament. Interesting guy, but we don't know much about Silas, except that he served both Peter and, or both Paul and Peter, because he mentions Peter, or Peter mentions him here at the end of this, end of this book. And he talks about this guy Silas, and Silas was a servant. He just served unassumingly behind the scenes. Served all kinds of people. But he was just there. And, and Jesus called, or God, Peter says, you guys, humility and service, they go hand in hand. And then he says, that's really how Jesus did it. He kind of hints at it here where he talks about being examples to the flock. And when the, ch the chief shepherd appears, in other words, look at Jesus' example, then you will see how he lived. Well, to really understand the humility of Jesus... The, the, the great passage in Philippians chapter 2, which we looked at a few months ago, or a couple of months back, um, talks about this aspect of humility. So Philippians chapter 2, verses five, and eight, 5 to 8, Paul says this. He says, in your relationship with one another, have the same at mindset, the same attitude as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. In other words, he didn't leverage it to make himself look good. I mean, he was God. He could have. He could have made himself look good. But he never bragged about the fact that he was God. He leaked it out slowly, very unassumingly. He never bragged about it. And people, up until even his death, they didn't really know that he was God. They didn't fully grasp the significance of who he really was. He never made it about himself. He never used it for his own advantage, as Paul says. Rather, he made himself nothing. Didn't mean he was a doormat. That's not what it says there. That's often what we assume, but that's not how he lived. And we, if you look at, read the Gospels, you see Jesus never lived like a doormat. Never made himself, but rather he, 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 he made himself nothing by, or, yeah, made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, by being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient 
to the greatest sacrifice of all, to death, death on the cross. What, a, what an astounding, the humility of Jesus always astounds me. Every time I think about it, I'm going, wow, like he, he operated in confidence and yet he operated with this unbelievable sense of humility and service. It's just, it's unbelievable when you actually look at how he operated and how he lived. Of, of the honor that should have been bestowed upon him, he never looked for it. Never once looked for it. And even when he, he could have, on the Mount Transfiguration, when, when the Father actually revealed the glory of Jesus, there was only a few guys there. He didn't bring a crowd. He didn't do it in front of a crowd. And that probably wasn't even for the disciples' sake. It was more of an affirmation on Jesus' sake, knowing that he was going to the cross, and his father knew that he needed a little bit of encouragement to make it across the goal line. God's good that way. He encourages us when we need it. When I think often about conversations I have with people, um, one of the things I find is, embarrassingly, is that I, I make it about me. I like to tell stories, and so somebody tells a story, I'm going, oh yeah, it reminds me. And, and I jump in, I don't know how many times, and God's been telling me over and over again, Bruce, don't do it. Don't jump there. Don't go there. Or when, when people hold grudges against me, I hang on to it because it's about me. And God goes, it's not about you. It's about what's going on in their soul. But I make it about me. I make it about me. I make it about a competition. I make it about all kinds of things. I, I, I think I'm better than other people. I mean, I, I, the wickedness of my own heart at times is, I shouldn't be even a pastor because sometimes I just, I fail so badly at it. But God keeps changing me. He keeps reminding me that I need to keep serving. I need to keep it focused on other people. Focused on Him and focused on other people. Because it's so easy to slip in and make it about ourselves, isn't it? About our own confidence. And, and of course, we hear around us that we have to be bold. We have to be who we, we are. And we have to step out in confidence and all those kinds of things. That's what the world tells us. But that's not really what Jesus calls us to do. He calls us to be bold, but only in regard to serving Him. And in serving other people around us. Do you ever notice that Jesus actually worked himself out of a job? Think about that for a moment. He worked himself out of a job. His purpose in coming was that he might multiply the disciples, and when he had the disciples multiplied, then he went, then he went and died on the cross. He recruited, he trained, he empowered, he sent out, then gave them what, everything they needed, gave them the Holy Spirit. And first of all, he did it with 12, because he didn't start with a big crowd. He started with 12. He sent them out. They came back. Good. Okay, this is, this is going well. Then the scripture says he sent out the 72. Luke chapter 10 sends out the 72. And when they came back excited, Jesus went. Whew, he had joy. The only place in the scriptures where it says Jesus had joy was when the 72 disciples came back. And, and Jesus went, this is going well. My multiplication is beginning to take place. People are getting that I am giving them everything they need. 
they can do as I have done. At that point in time, I think it was a beginning to see in his mind that he was beginning to transition and saying, okay, my job here is now done. I've trained, I've equipped, I've got 72 maybe, at least 72. Now I can finish the last step, which is to go to the cross. Jesus, before he went on the cross, he said, in, in the Garden of Eden, he said, Father, I have completed everything you have asked me to do. He hadn't gone to the cross yet. A lot of people think, well, that was, you know, he went to the cross. No, no, that's not counting the cross. He said, Father, you've asked me to do all this stuff. You've asked me to multiply myself. You've asked me to pour myself out, to give myself, to work myself out of a job, to make it about others. I've done that for three and a half years. I've done that. I've completed everything you've asked me to do. That servanthood at its highest form, working ourselves out of a job. So I got a question. The first question I want to ask you today, and, and I want you to ask Jesus this question. Just in your mind, pray it, you know. Jesus, when I'm a shepherd, when you call me to lead people, how do I make my, or how do I make my life about others and about, about you? How can I make my life about others? Think about that for a moment. Where do you find yourself tripping up and making life about you? Where instead you need to make it about others or about Jesus? Are you giving others time? Are you giving Jesus the time that he deserves? Or are you shortchanging him? If I held up four tickets to the next Oilers home game, how fast would some of you come down front to get them? Pretty fast? How many of you, how many of you would come and get them if I gave away four home game tickets to the next Oilers game? Yeah, there, come on, let's be honest. Even if you're not into hockey, you'd probably go, I'd, I'd want to go, right? And Jesus says, I want to meet with you. I got stuff to give you better than Oilers tickets. Would you meet me? How do we make our life more about God, about Jesus, and about others? Think about that. Ask Jesus that question. Peter goes on to say that another way that we can, that's in helping others around us, being shepherds, he jumps from this whole thing of humility into this thing called, which we've talked about before, we talked about it in Philippians, we've talked about it several times in this series on Philippians and 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, he says, cast all your, what's the word? Anxiety. What's another word for Anxiety. What's another word for anxiety? Fear? Worry? Caution even? We'll talk about caution in a bit. There, there's a place for it. But, but he says, cast all your anxiety, all your nervousness, all your, the things that disturb you on him. Why? Because he cares for you. It, you see, it's easy to be anxious 
and well, there's lots to be anxious about. I mean, I don't know, somebody, somebody went through the scriptures, and I've actually found a number of them. I actually haven't counted them, but somebody has said there's 365 references, commands, to this one statement, do not be afraid, or do not fear, or do not be anxious, or do not worry, which is all the same category. It's the most common repeated command in all of scripture. And the reason is, is because all of us trip over it over and over again. Because we don't trust that God is leading. We don't believe that he has us. I'm, I'm not saying we need to be foolish and drive 300 kilometers an hour down the white mud freeway. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying throw, you know, throw wisdom out the window. But, but so many things trip us up. Little things that sometimes we don't even understand. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, well, probably not already at the beginning, probably about five, four or five months in, I had to quit listening to the news. Any of you have to quit listening to the news during the pandemic because it just got you anxious? I, I know a couple others that's told me that too. They go, yeah, I, I had to quit listening to the news because I, I just, it just got me anxious and worried all the time. And I'm still here today. And by God's grace, I haven't had COVID. I, I don't know why. My family, my kids have all had it. Some of my grandkids have all had it. I mean, not that we've been around them through the stuff, but I mean, but you see, anxiousness could, began to settle in my heart when I began to listen to the news and allow that to feed, feed my soul, feed my mind, because what they are feeding you is fear. And you're going, well, they're feeding you truth. Yeah, okay, they're feeding you truth too. But, but the underlying motivation behind it is, oftentimes that truth creates fear in our lives the similar thing happened when I started list, watching the news and listening to what was going on in the Ukraine I'm not sure why the Ukraine impacted my life maybe because my family originated from that part of the world um, so I, I kind of I'm just kind of interested in what's going on over there a little bit but I had to quit, quit reading the news because it, it made me anxious inside and I'm going, that's not, that's not of God. And I had to make a choice to stop that. And, and there's all kinds of things that make, make me anxious or could make me anxious. And all of us find things in our life that could make us anxious. Our job, the amount of money we have, do we have enough money to retire eventually? You know, will we have enough money? Will we have a job? Will this relationship work out? Will my marriage survive? Will my, what about my kids? How will my kids make it through this life? I mean, there, you know, there's thousands of things that could add to our anxiousness. There, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. The opportunity to be anxious. There's lots to be anxious about. But the bottom line is, do we believe that God takes care of us and that God is in control? I had to get to the situation when, when come dealing with COVID is going, hey, if I get COVID, I get COVID, and God can either heal me or he can take me home. I got I to gotta surrender that because I could die in a car accident today too. Right? And, 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 and I had to realize that, that I either have to believe ultimately that God has me and has a purpose for my life, not that I'm foolish and go around and hug everybody that's got COVID just so that I can prove God that God can look after me. No, I'm not going to be that foolish. But at the same time, I need to just rest in His presence that God has me. 
no matter whether I'm driving or whether, whether I'm engaging in out, out and about with people or however, I have to realize that God has me, no matter what my future holds, because I don't know what my future holds. I've outlived my biological mother. My mother died at 42. I'm well past that. And the interesting thing is, there are three people that are, that are associated with our family. They all died at the age of 42. And I'm going, what is that about? My brother-in-law was killed in a car accident. My mom died at the age of 42. And I have uh, an uncle who was killed, hit a train when he was 42 years old. What in the world is that all about? And so guess what happened when I got to be 41? Right? You can all imagine it would have happened to you if it happened to your family. We all got to be that 41 and we hit 42 and we're going, is this it? But we have to believe that God's in control, can't, don't we? We all have to believe that. So again, ask, your, ask yourself, as, and as, not even just about yourself and about your own personal life, but as you're shepherding others and how others view you, because again, you're leading people by your example, how often do I become anxious or cautious or nervous? And what triggers those emotions? What triggers those emotions? What is God saying I need to do about anxiousness? Ask Him. I don't have the answer for you. Only God knows your, your situation. Peter then jumps into the next statement, and I, and I think he's, he's, he's following stuff here because I said, remember I said about being cautious? There is one place he tells us to be cautious about. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, he says this. He says, be alert and sober-minded. Uh, be of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. This is the place that Paul, Peter says you need to be cautious. He says you need to be aware that you are in a spiritual war and that we have an enemy. We, all, I mean, we don't think about it here in North America. If you were in other places of parts of the world, Africa, parts of Asia, different places like that, you would, or even, even certain neighborhoods or communities, you would see the demonic very far more visible than we do in our neighborhoods that we live in, most of us. We have an enemy that wants to distract us. He wants to distract us with ourselves, with pride, and he was an enemy that wants to distract us through fear and anxiety. And we've got to realize that those things are things that... We was talking with our daughter-in-law yesterday, and she said anxiety... She's going through nursing school, and she said that... I think she said anxiety is something that they actually can't prescribe a pill for. That's what she was taught. Because it's, a, it's an issue of the heart and the mind. We would call it a soul issue. Because it's about what we think and how we process the things around us. 
I mean, yeah, they can give you, you know, calming medications and all those kinds of things, but that doesn't really fight anxiety because anxiety is often what we think, and it's, it's triggered by things around us. And we have an enemy that wants to trip us up, and he's looking to trip us up. He's looking to distract us and make us anxious. He's looking to get us focused on ourselves and how come we aren't doing this or competing with this person or how come we're not living up to this standard or how come they have this and we don't have that. I mean, the enemy distracts us on a thousand different fronts. And Peter says, you've got to be aware of, this, of the war that you face in your mind, of the way the enemy, and he's out there. He's not waiting for you to stumble and fall and then catch you. He's out there actively pursuing you. And he will find things to seek to distract you. Now, we do, now having said that, the, the, next be, the next thing is we revert back to the second thing we talked about, about being anxious. We're going, oh, now I've got to be anxious. Oh, I'm scared. Uh, no, 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 no. We have to understand that there, that's not what it is. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus makes this statement. He says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And then he says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. We love the last part of that verse, don't we? We quote all the time. Oh, I love that. I have come, Jesus says, I have, I have, you know, he says to us, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it to the full. We love that part. But we forget that there's an enemy that's out there to seek, kill, lie, and destroy. He's out there. So how do we combat him? Well, Peter gives us the answer in this, in this chapter. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9. He says, resist him, standing in the faith, firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. He says, you do not face it alone. Everybody faces it. If unbelievers... Satan doesn't usually have to worry about them because he's already got them. But you, however, you are his favorite target because he wants to make your life miserable. And he wants you to be anxious. He wants to make life about you, all those other kinds of things. He wants to trip you up. But Peter says, resist him, stand firm in the faith, and, and, and recognizing that the, there is a war that you need to, you need to battle with. James, I, I, I love the imagery in James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. It's one of my uh, favorite passages when it comes to dealing with the enemy of our life. Just the imagery that I have there. Let me, let me read it, and then I'll, I'll unpack the imagery that I see there. J James says this. He says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will draw near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The image is this. This is what I picture in my mind when I read this passage. I'm a kid of five years old on the playground, okay? And the devil is a senior high kid, okay? You get the image? Big, small, okay? You're on the playground, and he's bullying you. Guess what? Your dad is standing on the sidelines. Except your dad isn't my size. Your dad isn't even like Shaq. Your dad is like Goliath, actually bigger than Goliath, okay? Like, he's like 12 feet high, and he looks muscular, I mean, like, just rippling. And he's got a black belt in, like, six different martial art backgrounds, okay? 
and your dad is standing on the sidelines over there, and he's, he's on, the, on the field, he's on the edge of the field, and this bully comes at you. What's your response? Right? Run to dad. Where do you grab? Right here. Grab him around the leg, and then what do you do? Stick your tongue out at him, right? I mean, that's, I mean, not that we stick our tongue out at the devil, but, but in a sense, that's what we're doing. We submit ourselves to God. Then we can turn around and say, look, take a hike, leave, get out of here. Not because we have any authority, but because we are hanging on to the leg of our Father. We are in His care. We belong to Him. The enemy has no rights. He has no authority. I mean, that, that high school kid no longer is a monster when you compare to a 12-foot father. I mean, it just, there's just no comparison. Like, and, and I mean, the, and ultimately the comparison is even more exaggerated than that. I mean, we're talking a giant. I mean, it'd be, be us like stepping on an ant kind of thing. That's, that's the kind of imagery that happens there. I mean, Genesis actually says that Jesus, Jesus will, will crush Satan's head with the heel of his foot. So it's literally like an ant, in a sense. That God is so much larger than Satan that there's, the comparison is, is, is it's mind-boggling. Like, there's no, there's not, they're not, it's not even an even fight. God is so much greater. And that's what he, the, James says. He says, submit to God, grab a hold of your father's leg, resist the devil, and he, will, he, he won't even turn around and fight. He'll just leave. Now, we may need to take a stand, and we may need to resist, which means we need to take, say, say a few things to him to get him to leave. But we've got to believe that we have submitted ourselves and we've got our, we, that God's got us wrapped up in his arms and that we're under his, under his authority. Paul says in Corinthians, talks again about this fight that we fight. In, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 6, he says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Interesting. How does the world fight? He says, we don't, we don't fight that way. We do not wage as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power, interesting statement, to demolish strongholds, and we demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. The biggest trap that the enemy gets us fall, the, the traps us in is lies. It's in here, the mind. That's the part that the enemy catches us every time in. I heard one guy describe Satan as having the biggest face and the biggest mouth you've ever seen, but his body is so skinny and so puny that it's it's just grotesque the, the comparison because the power is in the lie the power he has over us is often in the lie and the untruths he feeds our souls and the things that we buy into the things we believe in whether that's about how important we are or whether that's on regarding anxiety and anxiousness who's in control do you really that's exactly what he did in the garden adam and eve did god really say to you is god really in control is God, do you really trust God on that? Does he really have your best interest in mind? 
See the, the way the enemy confuses us. And it creates that lie. And so that's the biggest issue that we need to fight. We need, we need to wrestle with is understanding the battle is in our mind. John, Jesus, in John chapter 5, verse 39, he says that, 39 40, he says, you study, and this is a big, interesting statement he makes here, and it, it's, verse 40 is the important part. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These, these are the very scriptures that testify about me. But look at verse 40, he says, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. We may even get into the word of God and going, oh, but it's really not just the word, the written word of God, it's the living word of God that we also, that the two of them need to come together in our lives. John chapter 8 is another verse uh, that we love to quote where he says to the Jews who, be- who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Look at verse 32. He says, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And we're going, oh yes, that's the, I love verse 32. To know the truth and the truth will set you free. But listen what he, you're missing there. We often miss what's in 30, verse 31. He says, if you hold to my teaching, if you obey my teaching, if you believe it and trust that it's true, then the truth will set you free. Just knowing the truth won't set you free. You have to hold on to it. There's effort that comes along with it. So ask Jesus this morning, when you shepherd or even as you live through life, what lies have I believed from the enemy? Maybe lies about pride, about self-esteem. Maybe he's told you you're no good. Maybe you've been trying to compete or whatever. Maybe there's lies about anxiety or things that you fear, things you're anxious about things that God can't never, God could never do? What are the lies the enemy has fed you? Pick one. I, I had three or four that in my mind. But you have to pick one. Just pick one. Deal with one at a time. Because you see, as we shepherd people... We all have people we shepherd. We think, oh, I'm, I'm not a shepherd. I, I have nobody looks. There's always people that look up to you. People always look up to you. It might be your friends. It might, be, might even be your enemies. They would never tell you that, but they might be envious of you, and that's why they're an enemy. It's because they do respect you. They do look up to you. It might be your family. It might be your parents might look up to you, and you're going, my parents are you might be surprised. Your children, your boss, those that are underneath you. We're always living examples. That's part of the lies the enemy wants us to believe is that we, we're nobody and that nobody really wants to follow us. But Jesus says, no, you are a shepherd and people do follow you. Who are you shepherding? Maybe people you don't even really realize. It. Maybe it's the neighbors that watch you. So we come back to those three questions we've kind of been asking. How do I make my life more about others, about Jesus? How often do I become anxious or cautious or nervous and what triggers those emotions? 
What lies have I believed from the enemy? Let's pray together. Jesus, we come to you. you. You are our God, our Lord, our Savior, our Master. There is no one like you, no one in all the earth. And God, we, we can try and do some of these things. We can try and focus and try and just pull things aside and try and pull, you know, strive really hard at doing it. But God, in reality, you just say, come and surrender to me. And let me do it in you and through you. This is about me. It's not about you. It's not about how good you can be you because your best effort is, is a waste of time, is, is filthy rags. Jesus, our, our best effort is as filthy rags. And no matter how hard we try, we cannot measure up to the goodness and the greatness and the perfection that you require of us. But you will do it in and through us, through the person of Jesus. You will do it in and through us, through the work of the Holy Spirit. You will sanctify us and set us apart and make us holy as we trust you, as you do it in and through us. And we'll, we keep surrendering to you and keep working, working with you and keep resisting the enemy and realizing that the battle is going on in our mind and choosing what to believe and what not to believe and make some choices towards obedience, God, and you will empower us in that. And as we do that, then we, can, then we can begin to shepherd the way you call us to shepherd. We can lead the way you call us to lead. Whether we're young as elders or whether we're old as elders or young as, as young people, it doesn't matter, God. You will empower us because you call us all to this road of, of, of obedience, of, of humility, of not being anxious and not being eaten by the enemy, resisting the devil. So, God, we pray that you would help us to walk into that. Put, pour your spirit upon us. Come upon us this week that we may see these different aspects, the way you're leading us and working in our lives, God. And we'll give you the praise and the glory because it's all about you. It's ultimately all about you. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are and what you will do this week as we surrender and walk and step with you. In your name we pray.